I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to continue on with our sermon series on 1 Peter that I am entitling A Fiery Faith. And that is actually a play on that phrase, fiery faith, because as we are going to discover, and, and, and in part we did this past Wednesday night, that, that the fires of trials is what's going to impact our faith. So we're going to talk about that today. But the goal is actually to produce a fiery faith, if you will, a, a faith that is on fire, if you follow me. So I'm entitling this series as we're going through First Peter, and we're going to see this and, and the 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 ramifications of these trials, though they are not mentioned throughout, there's about 10 places in which these trials uh, are spoken of and, and we see the impact of them. Uh, but we're, as we go through this, we are going to see how these sufferings and these trials that we go through impact so much of our life. Uh, the message today is entitled, Untarnishing Gold. Untarnishing Gold. It's told that a teacher had a parents' conference, and she said to the, the parents, she said this. I want to I make a, something clear here. If you promise not to believe everything your child says happens at school, I'll promise not to believe everything your child says happens at home. <laughs> Fair deal, right? <clears throat> What we choose to believe is absolutely important. I remember, I'm going to go out on a little limb here, but I remember back in the day in which I believed in Santa Claus. I did. As time went on, though, and I, became, I began to mature, my brothers felt it incumbent upon them and their life goal to convince me that Santa Claus did not exist. And I fought it tooth and nail. And they came up with evidences. Uh, Mike, do you really think that reindeer can fly? Mike, how does he visit every home in the world in just one night? I had no answers to these questions. How does he slide down those skinny chimneys? Look at the guy again. And not get soot on his red outfit. By the way, Mike, why do mom and dad stay up so late Christmas Eve to like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning? You really think they're just watching movies? And as I began to ponder this, my faith in Santa Claus was shaken. But I still believed, though I had a light turn on just last year. <laughs> no. You see, for many Christians, this is the sum total of what faith is. Faith is believing God exists. Faith is believing Jesus exists. I want to tell you from the outset, Satan, the devil, is a theist. Did you catch that? He is not an atheist. He, too, believes in Santa Claus. Well, he, too, believes in God. He, too, believes that Jesus Christ walked this earth, is the Son of God, did miracles that blew him, by the way, out of the water, that rescued lost souls, that was raised from the dead, that promises eternal life, and was the only guy who could deliver on the promise, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. The only one ever. Satan 
believes this. He's a theist. And I'm going to submit to you that for many in the church, and I'm, I'm sure not Powerline, so maybe I'm just, you know, kind of uh, preaching from the hip here this morning. But many of us, the sum total of faith is I'm just going to go through this trial and still believe there is a God. And I want to tell you, if that's the case, then your faith is no better than the devil. Just let that truth sink in for a moment. Because faith, though that is the starting point, that is not faith. Faith is so much more than this. And it's for this reason that sufferings are actually important. There's something inside of us that hates trials. How many of you hate trials? I'm raising my, I'm going to raise both of my hands. If I could raise both of my feet and stand at the same time, I would. I hate trials. But here is, here is the deal. We can learn to have this love-hate relationship with trials. We're going to go through four ironies that we're going to read in just a minute here, found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. We're going to read, we're going to, I'm going to mention, and I, I don't have a whole lot of time. I am going to be going over just a little bit, by the way. I'm just going to forewarn you, maybe 10 minutes. I don't know if you want to let the nursery know this, but I, I have at least that much. I'm going to try and do my very best by 10 after 12 to be done this morning. But this is key because Satan's main weapon his main weapon is not for you to come to this place where you don't believe there's a God anymore, though he will try to do that. He realizes that for many of you, you're never going to give that up. So what he's going to do is he is going to attack you, and he will try to smother your faith, which, again, is more than just believing that God exists, more than just believing Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross, rose from the dead. The devil believes this. His faith is inadequate for this reason. He has no relationship with God. He is in rebellion. He still lives in sin. Lying is his native tongue. And so as a result, if he cannot get you to not believe that there's a God at all, with people like Charles Templeton, Charles Darwin, I'm sure these guys just came to this crisis of faith and they stopped believing in God. But those are few. That happens, but those are few. Satan's goal is a lot bigger than that, church. Satan's goal is to take you down, to discourage you, to minimize your faith. If he can't snuff it out, to compromise it. You see, this is his goal. The heart of faith, as we are going to see here, is relational. It is our relationship with God. This is faith. It is so much more than just simply believing that God exists. Though so we've got to start there, right, church? We've got to start there. I remember my college professor many years ago. He was an English uh, composition professor. He was an old guy. Actually, he was so old, he taught my dad. And he was one of my dad's main professors in getting his master's degree in English. That's how old this guy was. I did a paper, my final paper in his composition class. We had to do 10 papers over the semester. And then the last one had to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I presented evidences for the resurrection. And so his main goal was not to critique 
the reasonableness of what I presented, but the style I used, et cetera, because it's a composition class. He, he actually gave me an A on it. I was very pleased with that. I guess God blinded him to all my errors, or maybe he just remembered my dad and said, I can't give this guy anyway. He, but at the end, he said, could you speak with me after class? Great. He's going to change my grade, or what, what's he going to do here? And he said, Mike, I'd like to be able to get together with you and talk about this paper. So I thought, wow, he wants to talk about the paper. Maybe I can witness to him. This would be cool. So we set up a point, an appointment, and he sat down with me. And he said, Mike, I have a question for you. He said, I have a problem with your paper. And he was very gracious, real, real nice kind of guy. He said, I have a problem with your paper, and it's this. Isn't presenting evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ the antithesis and therefore working against believing in Jesus. Now, you're probably responding, huh? And that's what I said, huh? And then he began to quote Reinhold Niebuhr. Reinhold Niebuhr was a neo-Orthodox pastor. And he began to say to me, Mike, here's my problem. Faith is believing that there is a God and the more evidence you give, the less faith you need. Do you hear what he just said? And I said, I hear what you're saying, but I think I disagree with your understanding of faith. Because faith is reasonable. Reason and faith don't work against each other so that the more evidence you have for the existence of God, the less faith you need for this reason. Faith is more than just believing there is a God. Faith is believing in Jesus himself, and it's relational. Now, I hope I, I was able to communicate that. We actually spoke for about a half an hour to an hour, had a great conversation. But within neo-orthodoxy, which is very prevalent in our day, by the way, You'll find it on many campuses, and honestly, many so-called Christian campuses or ex-Christian campuses, like Stetson University is an ex-Christian campus. It used to be Baptist until the 90s, got rid of that label, separated themselves. They supposedly celebrate all religions, and they do so because they believe, with along with New Orthodox, the, the evidence, the historicity of the Bible is totally irrelevant. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, William Barclay, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, many others who have impacted Christianity today would say whether Jesus even actually lived or whether he was bodily raised from the dead is irrelevant because that's not what faith is about. Faith is believing in the story. Excuse me, something's rising up in my throat here. <clears throat> I'm sorry, that was very sarcastic. <laughs> it, it, this has so it, it, it has be, it has been ingrained in the fabric of our culture. It doesn't matter uh, about the evidence, and and they have this misunderstanding of faith that we need to make sure that is cleared up in our lives. Faith is yes, believing in the facts, but it is relational in nature. Now, let me before going any further, let me read through this passage here, and let's just jump into these four ironies that we're going to discover here together. 
Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time in This, I want you to underline that word, in this, you greatly rejoice. Underline that, we're going to probably underline everything in here, church, but we greatly rejoice. Underline those words, greatly rejoice, or whatever your version says. Though now for a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with, underline this phrase, church, inexpressible and glorious joy. See, this is ours, church. Greatly rejoicing, inexpressible and glorious joy, for we are receiving the goal of your faith. You are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that would come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. In other words, it wasn't going to happen in their day, but you, because it was going to happen in your day. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, even by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. And if we have time, I do want to address that last phrase. Irony number one, are you ready? Irony number one, we can greatly rejoice in trials that cause grief. Now, follow this. By faith, we have been born anew. We were dead. We have now come alive. Jim, by the way, did a great job this past Friday night with the teams talking about what eternal life is. And eternal life is not just some ticket into heaven. Eternal life is not just heaven itself. Eternal life is is that life that we possess now, but it has the quality of eternity in it. And it will never tarnish or fade or spoil. But we have been birthed into this new life in Jesus Christ. And three things follow. Number one, we have been birthed into a living hope. That means that this hope that you have, which you possess right now, it's not just future. It is you possess it right now. It is alive meaning it is not dead, it is something that is real, it is not just made up in your mind, it is a living hope in you, and it is also a hope of life. Now follow me here for a second. If you were to look in in John chapter 6, you would find that Jesus lights on this metaphor of, and they, they bring up the subject, Jews bring up the subject of manna. And Jesus says the same thing in two different ways. I am the living bread 
and I am the bread of life. I am the living bread. That means he is that bread that gives sustenance to you. He is alive. He is real. But he's also the bread of life and therefore the author and source of life. And if you believe in him, you will live. You will have this life inside of you. So we have this hope, and it is a living hope, but it is a hope of life. And we are in this life. And then he goes on, and, and by the way, that hope is, is hope that is fulfilled is no hope at all. So hope is something that we look forward to. But I'm going to just let you know that this hope is more than just heaven, but it is this hope that we have every single day. Every single day that we take with us, it is a living hope, and it is, a, it is a hope that impacts us with life. How sad it is when Christians today are content with living as if there is no hope, as if there, there is no life. They feel defeated. They feel regularly discouraged. The grief that we talk about here, it overwhelms them constantly. Now, reality check. In this first irony, I in no way want to play down this idea that grief is imagined. That grief is somehow of the devil and we should be like Christian Stoics. You know, the Stoics that deny emotions. That is not what he, he is saying. Reality check. You're going to go through sufferings and these sufferings will produce a grief. That is a reality. If you don't believe me, read through the Psalms. Just one read through and you'll understand. David lived a life, and it was hard, and, it, and, and he grieved Jesus himself, this type of grief he experienced in the garden, and the garden of Gethsemane. Grief is real, but in the midst of our grief, and above that will even pull us out of this emotion, because that's all the grief is, it's, it's our human response to hard times. They are real. And the emotion is real, but we can have this great rejoicing because of not just this living hope, but we have an inheritance and we have something that we look forward to and we are filled with this excitement of what we can have today that we're going to get into in the next irony and what God is doing here on earth, but then also in heaven. And, and church, understand that your life of 70, 80, 90, 100 years, God bless you with that, uh, on earth is so small compared to all of eternity. It truly is. It truly is. How many times have you just been tempted to sin, and, and it, you know, just this one time, you know, I'm just going to step into this sin, and you sin, and then once you did it, it was like, what? Why did I do, the pleasure of that was so short-lived, it was utterly worthless. What a fool I was. Now, I'm, look at all the consequences of this. God, help me, and God will, God's mercy, we read that word in here, didn't we? God's according to his mercy. God's mercy is so great, church. 
But let's understand, this life that we live is so small in comparison to that life that we have then, in which we will, the inheritance that we have now that we talk about in Romans, we are experiencing in part, and then we will experience it to the fullest, to the max, and it will be absolutely amazing. And so because of this hope we have now, we're going to get into that in the next irony, uh, more so, and then the, the hope of then eternal life in heaven and all that that encompasses, that is amazing. We, was it this past Sunday we were playing this really old song, In My Father's House? Uh, there's lots and lots of room to play football, okay? I believe that. You might think I am weird. What do you mean, playing football in heaven? What? Can I ask you a question? Why not? I want to learn all the other sports from the different cultures too. Be, because it is not all about just this, you know, angels' wings and harps and, and golden gates. And, and it is so much more. Eternity is living in this recreated world, experiencing the fullness of the joy in relationship with God, bearing the image of God, and therefore being creative. And if I'm not careful, I'm going to pre start preaching a different sermon. But you know, I've, I've talked to you about this, and what all that it, heaven will encompass, it is so much, read, read Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. It's about 500 pages. But as you work through it, you're not going to want to put it down, because for the most part, heaven is rarely preached about in churches these days. I'm not sure why, but it's rarely preached about. And it is, it is something that will grip your heart and will, I can hardly be with Jesus forever and all of this junk on and, and the enjoyment of his presence and the enjoyment of his creation and living in constant communion with God and all the implications, that will be amazing. And so there's this great joy. You know, this little trial, okay. And it hurts, yes, but it is so small. Now, let's go to the next irony, because I know that I'm on a schedule here. The next irony is this. God uses, now, I'm going to repeat this twice. God uses the result of mankind's sin, Genesis 3, his rebellion, which, which is suffering, okay? The result of mankind's sin, which is suffering. God uses the result of mankind's sin, which is suffering, to strengthen our faith, which is intimacy with God, and eradicate sin in us. That's an irony. That God uses the result of sin, which is suffering, to get rid of sin in my life. That is an irony. God uses the failure of man and the, the curse that follows to refine me to get rid of sin. But he does this by strengthening my faith. Now, I want to just delve into that a little bit here. Suffering, as we read through here, suffering is the fire that proves, tests, and purifies our faith. This word, prove. <clears throat> Some of your translations may say, proves the genuineness of our faith. It's the same word, by the way, that's used in James chapter 3, excuse me, James chapter 1 verse 3, that says the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So I'm going to suggest to you that the purpose of these trials is not just to prove the genuineness of your faith, 
but it is to purify your faith. Because James is not just concerned about whether your faith is genuine, but what's happening to your faith and the testing, and in that sense, the proving of your faith. So my point is this, that is God interested that your faith is genuine, that it's real? Because many who claim to be Christians, their faith is not genuine. I'm going to say, yes, it is. But it's more than this, and I want to look at that for just a moment. It proves, it tests, it refines. These trials are refining your faith. It, it, it's not to bring you to this point where you're just resolved, yes, there is a God, and, and I'm just going to keep believing in that. It is more than this. Tell me a little bit about who God is, and tell me about your relationship with him. Because in this context, he says, though you do not see him, you now you love him. You love him. You believe in him. And so believe and love are used interchangeably. Why would he do that if believing is just simply, you know, God exists. You know, Jesus died on the cross. and That's right. He rose from the dead. I learned that this past Easter. You know, it's so much more. Faith is this relationship. It is love-oriented. And get a load of this. Suffering refines that. Now, how many of you have been educated about gold and how it's refined. Um, we got a little bit of a lesson in Italy when they were talking about, see, their gold is not 14 karat gold. Their gold is 18 karat gold, and that's supposed to be so much better in the perfect combination. But here's what happens. When you refine gold, you put it under a fire. The flame has to reach a certain temperature, and then what happens is the impurities which are in all mined gold, the impurities begin to rise to the surface. You are then to scoop off those impurities, and then what happens is you have 24 karat gold, or pure gold. In Solomon's temple, what they did in order to decorate the interior of the temple is the craftsmen made panels. I don't know how big the panels were, but they were made of cedar, and then they carved palm trees in it. Uh, they must have had a vacation in Florida sometime, I guess. But they carved palm trees in it, and they carved cherubim in it and some other things. And then they took pure gold that had the draw skimmed off, skimmed off pure gold, and hammered it, overlaying these cedar panels, okay? And so they didn't have to carve the gold. They just hammered it in, and it conformed exactly to the image underneath of it but they had to purify it. James is saying here that this fire is causing the dross in your life, the sin, the impurities of your faith, those things that start creeping in, lies, temptation, start cre accusations, start creeping into your life, and they get mixed in with your faith and diluted. Trials bring them to the surface, but here's what most of us do. They look, at, they look at that pot of boiling gold. They see the impurities rising to the surface, and they say, oh my, and they get this big spoon-stirring stick, and they stir it up, which is the exact opposite of what do you want to do. You take, a, you take a ladle, and you skim off the impurities, but that's not what we do. We say, oh my goodness, these sufferings are terrible. God, how could you do this? And we start stirring the pot and we start mixing these impurities back into our faith. And God is so wanting your faith to be purified. But what do we do? No, 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 no. I'm not going to comply with this. 
Now, you don't say those words, do you, to God? That's, that's a little bit too bold and in your face. We're very nice. God, I really don't like this. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure how much I like you today. And, and we, we push him away. We stir the pot. And what happens? Truly, church, nothing happens. Your faith is not refined because you have not allowed the Spirit of God to skim off those impurities. We... Many times fail in this refining process because we have not learned to embrace the trials. I'm not saying that you have to love them. I, I mentioned earlier, they bring grief, which means pain. They brought Jesus pain. They brought Jesus grief. However, Jesus allowed and we're going to look at that in the next one. Jesus allowed trials to do their work in him. Interesting, what is that work? Can I tell you something? The reason why I entitled this message <clears throat> Untarnishing Gold, are you aware that pure gold cannot tarnish? Pure gold cannot oxidize. In other words, nothing in the gold reacts with oxygen to oxidize it and bring about that tarnish. You do not have to maintain pure gold. Now, 18 karat gold, you do. 14 karat gold, even more so. 10 karat gold, absolutely. Because those impurities in the gold that make it stronger cause it to tarnish. God wants your faith to be pure, untarnished, untarnishable. So that no matter what you go through, your faith will not falter. Again, it's not that, well, does God really exist? No, it is in the face of suffering, I love Jesus no matter what. Yet what about the martyrs? Do you realize that we have an irony even in our day-to-day? -day? The kingdom of God is growing exponentially in a way that that human history has never seen before. More people are getting saved in this generation. The kingdom of God is breaking through the darkness and bringing the spiritually dead to life more than in any other generation. But did you also know that there is more suffering in Christianity in the kingdom of God than ever before? More than in the first century church, more than under, you know, in World War I, in which Jews and, and many Christians were suffering and any other generation, we are, this is a generation that is experiencing more martyrdom and yet more growth in the kingdom of God than ever. This is just how Satan works. Can you imagine those martyrs of any generation? How did they treat sufferings? Why would they, why would Polycarp in 155 AD, while he is burning at the stake, rejoice and sing praises to God. He didn't curse him. He had an opportunity to recant <clears throat> before the, the ruler, and he refused to. He chose suffering, and he embraced it. Did he like it? Absolutely not. But did he embrace it with joy? Yes. He had a relationship with Jesus Christ that was so tight, 
so strong, unshakable, and may I even be so bold as to add untarnishing. Because his faith had been refined. He had seen God do miracles. He had seen the impossible happen. He had seen God turn circumstances around. He had seen people who, who, who lost loved ones and yet ran to Jesus and not away from him. Who fell in love with Jesus even more. And this is what God is wanting to do in us. This is bottom line faith 101 or 102 that I'm talking about this morning. Because we have got to learn how to embrace trials, and they come in many, many different forms. Learn how to embrace them. I didn't say enjoy them, but embrace them in a way that we say, God, I am yielding to you, and I don't understand this, and that's okay, but I will follow you, and I will love you with all of my heart no matter what. That is refined faith. That is, that type of faith gives praise and glory and honor to Jesus Christ. This, this is the goal. The very thing that Satan wanted to use to destroy mankind, God is turning around now to cause faith to be purified. And this is his goal in your life, your purified faith. I want to ask you, what struggle are you going through right now? How are you responding? Now, I'm not asking, do you still believe there is a God? I'm going to hope you are. That's why you're here this morning. But is it turning your heart away from him? Is it embittering your heart towards God? Do you feel cheated? Do you feel that somehow you are under God's radar and he doesn't see you and therefore doesn't care about you? Are you beginning to believe in some lies from the enemy? Because I tell you what, he's going to drop a bomb of lies in your life when you're going through suffering. And it is there's, your flesh and emotion is going to want to start latching on to them. Faith says, I refuse. I refuse to believe any of those foul lies. I have a God who is for me, who loves me so much as we look at irony number three, this is irony number three. Let me, let me find it in my notes here. Irony number three, here we go. The God that permitted sin and suffering in this world chose to step down into it to lead us through it. I've heard many atheists say, you know what? If there really is a God, why does he allow this suffering? He's kind of like this ivory tower God that distances himself from the sufferings of man. And to that, I respond, really? This is the God in which he created man. Man was the one who chose to sin and now live in this broken world. It's all man's fault. And God says, but I have a remedy. And I'm not just going to make everything vanish I'm going to use the very thing that Satan wanted to use to destroy my kingdom to build it up. That is an irony. But here's the, the third irony, that Jesus himself, God himself, would step down into yours and my suffering and, and suffer even more than you and I ever will to be able to lead us through that suffering. See, that is love. That is the God. We don't serve some ivory tower God is he transcendent? Yes, he is. 
but he is imminent as well. And we have the opportunity to be intimate with him. And this is where God is, this is why God is allowing these trials. Intimacy with him. Because of this living hope, this hope that gives us life. And when you, when you get this perspective on trials, you don't suddenly just start feeling grief and, oh my goodness, that that's ungodly and I shouldn't. But the joy will trump the grief. You see, the joy, the fact that, God, you are taking me through this. Jesus, you've already led the way. Let me read how you handled this, how you forgave those who cursed you and gossiped about you and slandered you, and you did not speak a word against them. When you were revived, you didn't revile in return. You forgave and you loved. Man, does that speak to my situation, he said. And Jesus stepped down into my suffering, yes, to pay for my sin, I don't want to downplay that, but to lead me through the suffering. <clears throat> Here is something interesting. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it says, in bringing many sons to glory, that is our living hope our inheritance as well, it was fitting that God, for whom and through him everything exists, should make the author of your salvation perfect through suffering. Now, don't misunderstand. By perfect, he does not mean sinless. This is a word that can also be translated complete. Jesus is about to become the source, the author of your salvation. And you get to experience that salvation presently, and we read about that in 1 Peter 1 here, and in the future, my future salvation. And G but Jesus had to become that perfect author by experiencing the very suffering that you are going through in your life right now. Jesus had to experience this so that he would become that high priest, so filled with compassion. You know what, Mike? <clears throat> Been there, felt that, but can you keep your eyes on me? Can you do that? Just keep your eyes on me. Follow me. Don't lose my voice. The voices in the world, they're so loud, but don't lose my voice. Keep tracking it, Mike. Keep your eyes on me. Don't turn, not, Mike, don't turn away. Follow me. Keep your eyes. I still love you. I am, I am watching over you. I am protecting you. By, we, we are kept by the power of God through this faith I'm refining. The more it is refined, the more you're going to see me dealing in your life and doing amazing things. But you are, I'm keeping you by my power my grace through your faith so just keep your eyes on me now can you do this and we waver and my Curtis wavers God here I go again really and I start focusing on this negativity and this trial and I am consumed with the trial and you read that anywhere you read that is that Paul's instruction let the grief overwhelm you no just let me step into this. I've been here, Mike. Let me step into this situation to follow my steps. One step after the other. It's like you're walking through this super 
deep snow. And when I was a kid, when I was following my dad, I had to put my foot in every single one of those steps. Otherwise, it was too hard. I wouldn't be able to keep up with him. My foot in his. My step in his. And that's how we follow. And God is just saying, Mike, just just follow me. The snow is deep and the suffering is great, but can you follow me? Don't just believe it exists. Reach out and hold his hand. You know, keep pressing in. When people are gossiping and slandering about you, you still love them and you still press into Jesus. When the boss reams you out and he uses you as his scapegoat, how unfair that is, but do you keep trusting and following Jesus? Jesus, or do you say, God, I cannot believe that you betrayed me? And once we start thinking that lie and then believing that lie, I'm going to tell you this right now. The devil is going to push you further and further and further away from the God that came into your life of suffering to lead you. Follow in his steps through this snow. That's what he invites us to do. The God that permitted sin and suffering in this world, chose to step down into it to lead us through it. John 16, 32. Before I hit my last point, I just want to read this. John 16, 32. And he says this. Many of you know this verse by heart. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, you have suffering, you have hardships, you may even be martyred. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Been there, done that, triumphed, kept my eyes on Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. I will follow you, God. You are my father, and I have this intimate relationship with you as your son. And do you not, as a son or daughter of God, have that same available intimate relationship with God the Father? Yes, you do. Then I will follow you, not my will, but yours be done. That's faith. That's faith. I will follow you, God. I I don't understand. I I, I cannot see it from your perspective, but I am going to follow you. And there is nothing that the devil will be able to do to deter me from pursuing Jesus, my Savior. Nothing. Because he loved me and poured his grace out upon me. He stepped into my existence, endured my type of suffering, and beyond that even, to lead me through it. You are my example. I will follow you. And you did this now also, of course, the cross, rescuing me from my sin. That is love. And then lastly, irony number four, glory always follows suffering when embraced by faith. The prophets, interesting. The prophets prophesied, and I've got four minutes. The prophets prophesied the sufferings and glories of Christ. They didn't just prophesy his sufferings, Isaiah 53, amazing. But even within Isaiah 53, there is a strong hint of his resurrection. That's one of the glories. One of the, another of the glories is that he would be, uh, he would ascend into heaven. Another is that he would be seated at the right hand 
of God the Father in heaven, the Ancient of Days, which we get a picture and prophecy of in Daniel 7, the Son of I saw one like a Son of Man ushered on a cloud into the presence of the Ancient of Days. That is a prophetic picture of the ascension and session seating at the right hand of the Father. And the kingdom was given to him, and, and all glory and power and honor were given to him, and all nations served and worshipped him. That is, but the, that is still not the end of the glory of Christ that the prophets prophesied. He will come one day and he will fully establish his kingdom. And every kingdom contrary to his kingdom will be obliterated and only his will remain. Now have come the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And it is that kingdom that will come and be established and that we will live in forever and ever, church. But that still isn't all the glories because what is between these are the glories that you and I get to live in because of what Christ has accomplished for us. It is the glories that when we suffer just like Christ and our faith is refined and our faith is to the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ, that so honors and glorifies him. Right now, not just at the end of the age, God looks down on Mary Smith and says, man, the suffering you have gone through and the faith that I have refined, woo, yes, I am amazed and I, yes, and he applauds and he stands and the one audience of our salvation applauds someone like Mary Smith and someone like you and you and, and each of us as we endure our trials and we say, yet I will pursue you, God. I will not be deterred, and I will follow in your footsteps because of what you've accomplished for me. You've won my heart, and you are my first love. They, these are the glories of Christ as well in us. Even angels right now, it's in the present tense, last phrase, even angels long, not past tense, longed, present tense of Peter's writing, long to look into these. Now, Jesus has already suffered. Maybe there's a little bit more of an understanding that they're acquiring from the prophets and now through the apostles in their preaching, but it's the glories, I think, that they're looking into more and more. They long, let me, let me just see this drama of God's grace poured out in the earth, and as the earth is just erupting with the truth of the gospel and people embracing it and being changed, and as they're going through these sufferings, and during Peter's day, we learned they were great. The faith is refined. The angels long and are amazed. Because even the powers, the, excuse me, the rulers and authorities, it talks about that in, in Ephesians 3.10. The manifold wisdom of God is being displayed before the rulers and authorities, not on this earth, in the heavenly realms, being displayed, and the angels look on in awe of the glories of Christ unfolded in your life, church. 
These amaze them, and they all stand in, ca- in, in captured wonder of what Christ is doing and how horrific some of these sufferings are, and yet the testimonies that are birthed all over the world in the kingdom of God and how they testify to God's deliverance and, and rescuing, and even though they may have lost their life, that they remain true and passionate and in love with Jesus to the end. And the angels are amazed as they look on. Church, let me word it this way. Would you live your life in such a way as to amaze the angels? And that is by reflecting Christ and allowing him to live through you. Angels long to look into this. Even though the prophets spoke of these things and inspired by the Spirit, they still didn't get it all. We have the privilege of getting it all, church. We have that privilege. Your entire life is summed up here. You will never be able to run fast enough away from suffering. I'm sorry, church. You may have hoped to hear a really good sermon that if you believe in Jesus, you'll never have to suffer or go through trials again. It ain't so. It just isn't so. And you will go through them. And there are some in our future, not for us to fear, but to embrace and say, even though they hurt God, there is something so amazing in which the glories of Christ's suffering and his glory and it being revealed in me, I get to participate in that. So I'm just going to close with this because I'm already two minutes past. Is the gold of your faith tarnishing? And if it is, there is only one reason for that. It's because there's impurities mixed in with it. And God is wanting to remove those. When the pot gets hot and you see those impurities come to the surface, don't stir it in, church. Let the Spirit of God and His grace and love and tenderness and compassion for you, let Him start scooping it off. And as your faith is refined, understand this. You will be able to embrace those trials more and more. You will be filled. It says here, with inexpressible and glorious joy. Joy, church. Joy. How many of you, you want to have a happy, joyful life? And there's a difference between happiness and joy. I understand happiness is just an emotion, but joy. I want that. I want that even when life is so stinking hard that I am filled with joy and irony. But it's yours, and that's part of our inheritance. That's part of my living hope. I'm going to walk in it. May God give us grace to do that. May God produce that gold that faith that is untarnishing. Can you stand with me? I'm just going to, I'm going to be quiet for a moment if we could dim the lights. I just want, I know we're past time. But can you let, if God spoke to you, and I believe that he did for many of you, could you just let him seal that in your heart? Could you respond to him? What does he want you to do in response to this. Take a moment.
Jesus, thank you that you stepped down into my world and you shouldered the sufferings and much more than what I face. And you became the complete, perfect source of my salvation to lead the way. And Father, if I start throwing a spiritual temper tantrum, number one, would you forgive me? But Lord, would you please call to me my name that I would reach out to your hand? These snowdrifts are deep and I am weak. to follow in your footsteps, Jesus. Father, when you bring the dross that's mixed in with my face, faith to the surface, please empower me that it would get scooped off. Remove it from my life, God, please. May you fill me with greater love for you. May you give me a heart that pursues you no matter what. And as a result, would you please fill me with inexpressible, glorious joy as a result. That joy is my birthright. The devil cannot have it. So don't let me believe those lies, Lord. Today, God, I am following you. My faith is focused. I will rise above these trials because underneath me is your power that keeps me. Thank you, God. Thank you that you protect us. You refine us. Thank you that you love us no matter what. So, God, please. Please give us that faith that is so pure and glorious. In Jesus' name, amen.